Well, good morning again, everyone. We're going to get started in just a minute. If you want to start turning in your Bibles to Acts. We are in Acts chapter 12 today. Again, uh, my name is David Appelt. I'm not normally here. Um, haven't been here with you guys since last year. Um, we planted in Canal Winchester in Feb- on February the 12th. I think that was the last Sunday that I was here with you guys. And so I'm glad to be here with you all today to sort of celebrate what is going on. Last week in chapter 11, Barnabas was sent to Antioch to sort of see what was going on at the church in Antioch. And, and I guess, um, I don't know if Jeff and I just thought it was such a good idea. We we're like, why don't we switch this next week, do the same thing. Um, that's a corny joke. Don't laugh at that. Um, but we are going to jump into Acts chapter 12 here today, and I'm excited to do that with you all. Um, and as we do that, um, Hobie Bond is going to read our passage for us. Um, we're reading all of Acts chapter 12 today. Don't freak out. It's not too many verses. Um, but if you do need to sit during the reading, that is okay. Um, I know it is kind of long, but I will invite you, if you're able, to stand with me now as we read this passage. Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel, but the, by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When he had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept on insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is an angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was little, no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. 
And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory, God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Let's pray together. God, you are a faithful and eternal and holy God. And as we come before you now, we have opened your word, this word that the Spirit of God inspired and has preserved through the ages so that we would have it today as your church to know you, to know the salvation we've been given in Christ, to be encouraged and built up. And so we recognize today, Lord, that unless the Spirit does his work in us, we will have all these things falling upon our deaf ears. And so we ask that you would encourage us where our hearts are tired this morning or despairing. I pray for encouragement from the Spirit of God. Lord, where we need your gracious correction and conviction, we pray, Spirit of God, that you would bring that to us, that we would be made less like what we have fallen into in sin and more like the one who has set us free. Lord, we ask all these things in his name and in the power of the Holy Spirit and, in, and to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. So this passage today, I'm excited to jump into it with you because there's a lot going on in here and we'll have to kind of go at a, a faster pace as we make our way through it. But there's one of the things I want us to pay attention to is that this entire chapter, we have two things that are kind of put in contrast. The central theme is humility and pride. Humility and pride. We see humility on display and then we see pride on display and we see the fruit of both of those things. And we'll get to that more towards the end. But first, I want us to look at these um, first five verses. We see here in verse one that Herod the king, who would have been installed as a king under the Roman emperor, um, the, the Roman Empire had this habit of sort of having kings under the, the actual emperor, and they were given governance over um, specific districts and regions. And so Herod is the grandson of Herod the Great, which is the, probably the first Herod you think of when it comes to the Bible. Herod has been installed over Tyre and Sidon, like we see later on, but also over the region of Judea and Jerusalem. So Herod the Great is a man who seems to be greatly concerned, or Herod Agrippa rather is this Herod, he seems to be greatly concerned with his own empire, with his own glory, and what people think of him. And so he begins to persecute the church. We read in verse 2 that he killed James, the brother of John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, James, and John. He killed James with the sword. And then when he saw that it pleased the Jews... 
he realized he could do that again, and so he goes and finds Peter. Now, why would that please the Jews? If we think about this for a moment, the chapter we just went through, the last two chapters in the book of Acts, I think tell us why. That for the first time, Christianity is no longer just a piece of Judaism. It's not a sect of of Judaism, but it's actually beginning to differentiate itself from Judaism. So it's no longer just following a different rabbi within the Jewish religion. No, instead, these Christians are beginning to step outside of the dietary laws. They're beginning to step outside of the ceremonial laws. They're beginning to step outside of the temple laws because they've recognized that in Christ, these things have been fulfilled. And now for the people of Israel, that's an extremely hard pill to swallow. I think that's part of why they begin to aim a persecution at the church. And the king, Herod, is pleased to carry it out for them because he wants them to love him. So these are really difficult times for the church. James has been killed. Peter is next. And he's sitting there in prison not because... They're deciding if they want to kill him or not, but because this is happening during a Jewish festival, during the days of unleavened bread. And during, according to Jewish tradition, it wouldn't be right to execute somebody during a festival. And so Herod is playing his political cards well. He knows when to kill this man, Peter, and he's going to do it after the festival has wrapped up. So the church here, I want us to consider for a moment that the church here is bracing for another impact. The church has already lost one of the more prominent disciples in James. The church has seen Stephen martyred and lots of other people persecuted. And now Peter, one of the other prominent apostles, is in prison and probably on this day here, hours from his death. So what do they do in response to this? We see it in verse 5. The church begins to pray earnestly. I love that this verse doesn't simply say that prayer was made for him. It says that earnest prayer was made for him. Earnestness means that we're talking about serious prayer, devoted prayer, meaningful prayer, concentrated prayer, prayer with effort and intention and persistence. The church is not casually praying. They are intentionally and constantly praying for Peter, humbling themselves under God because they know how greatly they need him. They, they understand in this moment how much of a threat and a, and a pain this is. They see the enemies of God lifting themselves up, raising themselves up, and yet what they do in response to that is quite simply humble themselves before God. So they are praying earnestly, but not sure yet what God is going to do. We see what happens next in the story is that Herod is about to bring Peter out. But we find Peter sleeping between two soldiers. And don't miss the fact that it says when he's about to bring him out, he's talking about bringing him out to put him to death. And Peter is asleep. It's amazing to me that Peter is asleep on this night. He has, I don't think he has any expectation that he's going to be delivered. He just saw James be killed. So what about Peter would make him think in this moment, well, yeah, he let James die, but he's probably definitely going to save me. Uh, somehow in Peter's confidence, it's not about, not about whether he lives or dies. It's that he knows that God does what is right. So he's able to sleep. 
and this angel comes to him while he is chained to two, physically chained to two other guards, and then there's two more standing at the gates. So Peter was not in a minimum security holding cell here. Peter is in maximum security. Peter is locked up well and tight. He's well observed, well accounted for. He's not slipping out on his own. There are four separate teams of four men that are watching over him around the clock. But an angel shows up to Peter, and lest we think that every angel is just kind of some gentle, meek and mild Cupid, he shows up and he strikes him on the side. He like punches him awake and says, get up, get, get, get dressed and get going. We're leaving now. And so Peter then begins to follow this angel out of the prison. But it's amazing to me that he, this, this deliverance is so miraculous and so unexpected that he doesn't think that it's real. Peter goes through the entire, all these steps here and he doesn't, he thinks it's a vision the entire time. He's just following the guard past these soldiers. He's following him past the first set of the gates and then the other set of the gates and he's out in the street. And then when the angel leaves him, he recognizes, oh, I'm actually outside. This was a real deliverance that just happened. He's completely shocked by it. And we see that 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 unexpected way follows through to everyone else. As Peter shows up at the home of the believers that are praying for them, where it says there are many gathered, Rhoda is so excited that she forgets to open the door for Peter. So Rhoda is so excited that then she just runs in and she tells them, listen, he's here. The man we've been praying for is right outside. But unfortunately, they don't believe that this is happening either. They say that she's crazy, out of her mind, and they say this is his angel. Now I want to take a moment here to pause because what's said almost in passing here in this verse, I want us to understand it clearly. I want us to take a moment in verse 15 and understand what this is not teaching us. Okay, this is not God, nor the early church, nor scripture affirming the idea that Peter has been killed and now his spirit or his ghost is coming back to talk to the church. It is not saying that Peter's ghost or his spirit is, is coming here. Not that they believed that, nor that God teaches that that is true or the case. We know that for a few reasons. The first is that the word used here for angel is a specific word. It's the word angelos. You want to guess what that means? Angel, yeah, it's fairly easy for us. You guys all know Greek today. Like, that word is different from the word of spirit or ghost. The New Testament has words for spirits and ghosts. It's not the word here. This word always only ever means angel. It means a specific angel created by God. And early on in the church, they did have a belief, and even in Jewish thought, they did have a belief that people had a specific guardian angel that would attend to them and protect them. And there was a belief that that, that guardian angel could at times take on the form um, and speak to other people. Again, that was a sort of a traditional thing in Jewish thought, not necessarily in the scriptures. So we don't hold to that as authoritative, but I bring that up to point out the fact that they definitely did not think this was a ghost. They definitely did not think it was his spirit. The second reason is that they also knew he wasn't dead yet. They were still praying for him because they knew that he was scheduled to be put to death, but not put to death. If he was already dead, I really believe they wouldn't be praying for Peter anymore, be praying for themselves. 
And the third thing is that the scriptures clearly teach us that mankind does not hang around as spirits or ghosts after death. After death, we don't kind of revisit this plane of existence. In Hebrews chapter 9, 27, it says it is appointed for man once to die and after that to face judgment. When Jesus teaches the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, this parable where this rich man dies and he wants to go back and warn his brothers that everything that's been taught is real so they would be warned about its reality and not end up where he is. Jesus says, you cannot. There's a chasm fixed between here and there. The scriptures are clear throughout that after death comes judgment, which means that we are either immediately in the presence of God in perfect rest in heaven all of our sin being parted from us, or we are in judgment experiencing the weight of all of our sin. And there's no crossing back. There's no back and forth. There's no speaking back and forth. The scriptures are clear about this from Old Testament to New. And, and God lovingly warns us, therefore, that what even might seem like an angel or what may seem like a, 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 lo- a lost family member or friend might seem like an angel of light, might seem like a comfort, but God warns us that that is not what it is, and it's rather a sinister darkness, and it should be treated that way. Now, I say that, and it might sound really harsh or extreme, but there's a really simple reason that I want to be that clear, that that is not a biblical thing, it's not a good thing, The reason is that I want to, like God wants to, in his word, warn us of that danger and not to be tricked by it. What might be seen parading around as a blessing or an angel of light is not sent from God. There is no teaching in the scriptures that tells us that we will have visits from our family members after their death or that we will be able to visit others after their death. And the reason for that is because there is that chasm fixed, and God wants to be clear for us that, that the comfort that we have, maybe in the loss of a loved one or the loss of a family member, the comfort that you have is not that you will talk to them again as they're a ghost or a spirit. The comfort that you have is God himself, who he is, and what he has promised you in salvation. The comfort you have is that if they have gone and died in Christ, then they are with him and you will see them and him again. That's the comfort to hold on to. As we resume the story here, I want us to think for a moment about this instance where Peter comes back to the room where they were just praying for them, praying for him. I mean, imagine that room as Peter walks into it. As they begin to understand that this was really and truly the apostle that they had been praying for and longing to see again, longing to see alive, that all of a sudden he's there in the room with them. There is obviously a commotion created because Peter, who just escaped the law, is telling them to quiet down, right? Let's not make too much of a scene. A neighbor could wonder what's going on and this could be bad all over again. And so Peter says, let's quiet down. Let me tell you what happened and go and tell the brothers. And as he does that, I'm struck by something else about the early church and how they prayed. They prayed earnestly, not casually like we sometimes do it, but they also prayed persistently throughout this whole story. It says in verse 5 that they were making earnest 
prayer for him. And then it seems we're led to believe that continued all the way until the moment that he was on the doorstep. Maybe they weren't in one room for all of those days praying for him. But I think that we're led to believe that this prayer for Peter was a continual thing for them. So they didn't pray that first day that Peter got arrested and then stop praying because God didn't answer it right away. They didn't pray and then get angry and frustrated. God, I made a good prayer. God, that was a really good prayer. Why didn't you answer it? God, did you hear me? They kept on praying. They showed faith that God was wise and his timing is perfect and his provision is perfect. They knew that he would only be bound if God wanted him to be bound. So they kept praying to the Father. They didn't give up in despair or anger. They knew the teaching that Christ himself gave when he told the parable of the persistent widow. It's in Luke 18, if you want to read that this week. It says there that Jesus told his disciples a parable to the effect that they should always pray and never lose heart. And the story that he tells them is of a widow who needs this judge to act on her behalf and give her the justice that she needs. And so she keeps on coming and knocking on the door to remind him of her plight. And eventually he gives in. And the whole point of the story from Christ is that God is a good God who actually delights to hear the prayer of his people and doesn't get tired of them knocking on the door and doesn't get tired of you. He doesn't start to tune your voice out after it's been a day or two of praying. He doesn't get tired of the fact that that burden for you is still a burden, that you still need help. So I want you to learn this simple lesson today. I want us to learn it. I want my heart to learn it. You need to keep praying. You need to keep praying. Now, I know that this is um, a, a, a hard thing emotionally for us to just to decide in advance, I'm going to persistently pray. It's hard for us not to know why prayers don't get answered right away. It's hard for us not to know why we still have to pray for that thing or that situation or that person in our lives. It's hard for us to, to, not, to not know why, when, or when God is going to answer a prayer. It's hard to not know why he hasn't answered the prayer yet that our marriages would be better or that we would have a marriage if we long for one or that we would have a, our job situation fixed or that our kids would be following the Lord or that we want to have kids and maybe we haven't had them yet. It's hard to know why God hasn't answered the prayer that the, the people that we long for in our lives have not come to faith yet. It's hard to not know why God hasn't healed us of pains and tragedies in our past and we wonder how long we have to keep praying about them. It's hard to know, to not know why. But as Christ himself said, do not lose heart. You know that your God is good and he's wise and he has attentive ears. He doesn't have deaf ears. He doesn't have tuned out ears to his people. And not only that, but he has actually the heart and the power to give his people what they need. But man, when you long to be able to stop praying for those things, your God is not unfeeling towards that. He's not tired of it. And he's glorified even as you wait. And he will amazingly use it to produce joy in you. It will surprise you when it arrives. But he's still at work, so pray and do not lose heart. First Peter 5 says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he will lift you up. God does know the proper time. 
God does know the proper deliverance. He waited until the last minute to deliver Peter. They were praying for several days. He waited until the very end to deliver Peter. Why? Because that's what he wanted to do. Because that was what the right, wise thing was according to the all-perfect and powerful God. It was when, Pe- when Herod was about to bring him out to put him to death, verse 6. When he was about to die, that's when God sent deliverance. And the whole time the church was praying, I wonder if we pray persistently like that. I wonder if we trust God enough to keep praying in moments like that. They didn't just pray earnestly or persistently, though they also prayed corporately. They prayed together. Don't miss that in verse 12. It says that many were gathered in this house. It wasn't one or two. Many of the church were gathered. It was probably a big crowd, which is why Peter was worried about the noise. They understood that there was a special gift in praying together and not just by themselves. Individual prayer, praying by ourselves is good, but it's not supposed to exist in our lives all by itself. Just like we're supposed to read the Bible on our own, we, should, we might sing by ourselves, we might worship God in many ways by ourselves, but there is something special and purposeful for God in the actual gathering of his people to worship, to pray, to read, to sing together. That is a special gift that, listen, cannot be replaced in your life. And I'll, maybe I'll go out on a limb here, I'll step outside of the pulpit I really don't believe you can read the Bible enough on your own that, that you won't miss something of being a, actually a part of a church, to sing it with the body, to read with the body, to pray with the body, to hear it preached in the body. You will miss out, even if you are just the best at reading your Bible. And one of the ways that we even do that is that corporate prayer gathering like we have tonight to come and pray together. So I want to encourage you to be here at six o'clock and pray. And it's, we have to do this together because we don't only have individual needs, but we do have collective needs and, and corporate needs. Think about the needs in Pickerington, right? The Lord is being kind and blessing this church and it is growing. And we have these three gatherings on a Sunday, but we have this desire that we believe God leading us to be moving towards building a building so that more would come and hear and, and, and hear about Christ and more would be trained up and then sent out to go and to plant more churches and make more disciples. And we need God's help to do that. In Canal Winchester, and you might not know this, some of the things going on there, recently we got a new building that was opened up to us. So we use another church's building on Sunday mornings. And so we are longing for the day that we own a building that is more permanently ours, that there would be more ministry that could happen there, that God would root us more in the community and multiply our evangelism in Canal Winchester. But these are things that we need as a people together, and we ought to also pray for those things together. But that's just to mention sort of the church wide things. Man, if we spent about three or four minutes and we just went through the room and we said, everybody list off as many need, the needs in your life from the greatest to the smallest, the things that you need, we would quickly be overwhelmed with how many things we need God for. So the question for us, the question of prayer is not whether or not you have needs. It is whether or not you think you need God for those needs. 
It's not whether or not you have needs. It's whether or not you're humble enough to admit that you are dependent upon God to move and to act. People ask all the time. People talk all the time about, oh, I just want to be a better prayer. I want to pray more. How do I grow in this? How do I get better at this? There's not a simple trick to it. There's just one simple thing, and it's whether or not you believe that you need God. The only question of whether you will pray, whether it will become a habit in your life, whether it will be something that you are driven to, not by just crazy circumstances, but it's actually who you are, is whether or not you know you're confident that you need God. If you know that you need him for for getting out of bed in the morning, for the next breath that will enter your lungs, if you know that you need him to act in your child's life, if you know that you need him to to help you in your job, if you know that you need him to keep you from sinning in the next 10 minutes, if you know that you need him for things great and even the tiniest things in your life that we think we have our own power to do all the time, if we know that we need him, we will pray. If you know that you need God, you will pray. That's what we need God to give us. Like this church, faced with our own desperation, God, we need you. I need you. If we believe that, we will pray. Because as God's people humble themselves, this is what I want us to see in this passage, as God's people humble themselves in earnest and persistent and gathered prayer, he raises them up and he humbles his enemies. This whole chapter, I want you to see the amazing irony in this story. You have one group of people that are dependent, desperate, and humble, lowered as low as they could be, asking God for his help. And then you have this other man named Herod who is raising himself up as high as he possibly can to try and destroy this kingdom of God, the church that has been put in front of him. And yet the irony of the situation is that those that are not seeking their own strength and ability are raised up, and the man who is seeking his own glory and praise is cast down. God wants you to see that irony today, because that is the story that plays out in our lives every day. Give verse 20. Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, another region that he would control, and this might have been during a time of famine, where they were dependent on Herod giving them food. So they are out, they're on the outs with Herod, and they're like, well, how do we sort of fix, fix this situation? Well, we need to go get back on his good side. So there's this festival appointed, probably a festival in honor of the emperor, although the emperor was not there, because if the emperor was there, they definitely would, have been shout, they would not have been shouting that Herod was a god. That would have gotten them put to death real fast. But we have Herod there, and he puts on his royal robes. There's an old Jewish historian named Josephus, and he recorded this event, amazingly enough, and he said that the clothes that Herod put on were silver and gold, and they shined like the sun when the sun hit him. So Herod is sort of sitting here up on a stage, giving this great speech, sort of shining like an angel. And so the crowd begins to flatter him and say, the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod apparently enjoys this. As they exalt him, he exalts in it. And amazingly enough, the scriptures say, and Josephus as the historian also records, 
that there God strikes him down. It says, Josephus' account actually says that in this moment he was gripped with all these pains in his body and in his stomach, and five days later was when he breathed his last. But why? The scriptures give us an answer because he did not give God the glory. He delighted in glorifying himself, so he breathed his last. Amazingly enough, Herod's words were never heard from again. His kingdom just ended. But the word of God and the kingdom of God that he was seeking to end grows, increases, and multiplies. You see that that little irony, the twist here that we have? Herod's reign is ended, and the reign he was trying to end goes on and gets bigger. There's a passage that I want us to turn to. Um, If you can turn to the book of Psalms right in the middle of your Bible. If you want to turn to Psalm 2, we're going to read that psalm together. I promise it's not a long psalm, but I think it deals so well with this story that we have. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, who is this king? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You'll recognize this. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You, this Messiah king, will break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son or serve the Son, bless the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is what we see in Acts chapter 12. The wrath of God quickly kindled. For a man that is setting himself up to be king. But at the same time, blessed refuge for those who humble themselves before him. This is the entire sermon in a few seconds. Those that humble themselves before God will be raised up. Those that exalt themselves over God will be lowered down. Those that humble themselves under God will be raised up, and those that exalt themselves over him will be lowered down. As we read this story of Herod, I think it's easy for us to sort of feel very removed from the sin that Herod committed. I mean, none of us have thrones, probably. None of us have um, big royal robes. None of us have crowds that will stand in front of us that we can speak to, and they'll shout back that we're greater than a man, that we're God himself. And so as we read this story of Herod, it might seem extreme and it might seem like we have no way that we could ever commit that sin. So it's just kind of a weird example in church history for us to, I don't know, read and learn. But what we have to understand in this is that Herod has done something 
practically and visibly and very um, physically in saying out loud here, he is his own God. He is his own God. He's greater than a man. He's greater than God. He wants his own glory. He deserves it. But that temptation that Herod falls prey to here is the temptation inside of every single one of our temptations we have. That temptation of my own glory, my own God, I want to be under my own authority, I want to be under my own charge, I want to decide what I want to do. That is the temptation of every temptation since the garden itself. Did God really say, isn't God holding out on you? Isn't God maybe wrong? Doesn't God maybe not understand what you understand? You're wiser than him. You know better than him. You know what you want or need more than him. So why not do this or that? A central question in every temptation for us is whether we will humbly submit ourselves to God's word and his law and let him be God or whether we will exalt ourselves over and against him for what we say is best when we want it how we want it, how we want to get to it, and how long we want to keep it. It doesn't matter what the sin is. This is what sin does to us and what we do in our sin. We are crying out for glory to ourselves and enthronement for ourselves over God's throne. We want to build, like Herod, a short-lived, lesser, more glorious kingdom than we think God has or offers to us. It doesn't matter if it's lying to our friend, our coworker, our boss, our parents. It doesn't matter if it's sleeping with our girlfriend or our boyfriend. It doesn't matter if it's lust or pornography. It doesn't matter if it's greed and stealing. It doesn't matter what it is. Every single one of those things, the root is the same. The root, the, the, the thread that connects those things is the same from our hearts wanting to be our own gods. We can all be just as self-glorifying as Herod is here. Might not seem like those threads are so blatant and connected as they are here, but trust me, if you think about these temptations for just a minute, that's where they lead. But crucially for us, there's very good news even in the backdrop of this story. Because though all of us, every single one of us, in all of our sin, we have exalted ourselves against God. We have told God we'd like to be our own God. We'd like to make our own rules. We'd like to do our own things, how we would like to do them. And that he doesn't know better than us. And thus we have casted ourselves outside of his glory. By seeking our own, we've removed ourselves from the privilege of being in his. Even though all of that is true, there's one king named Jesus Christ who's the actual king of glory, who has actual eternal glory, legitimate, eternal, holy glory. And he decided to lay all of his aside to come and to live perfectly on this earth, to live humbly and perfectly, and righteously, and yet still be um, sacrificially struck down in our place. To be struck down as Herod was struck down. To be struck down as you and I deserve it. To be buried in the grave, humbled into the dirt that he made and sustained, but still raised up after that in glorious, perfect power and glory so that anyone who humble themselves before him can also with him be raised into new life. And not just be 
raised up and forgiven. But listen, forgiven, freed, washed, sanctified, justified, and yes, as the scriptures say, glorified in Christ. And in this new life you and I are given, we are given, we are taken away from the decaying and weak and short-lived glory of our own things and our own kingdom. We are rescued from those things and freed from the curse that they bring to us. And we're made free to live for God's glory. We're made free to live for actual glory, glory that is worth pursuing, glory that doesn't die in five days, glory that isn't short-lived, Glory that isn't self-focused, freed up from those things and the curse that it brings us in Christ for actual life. But as Jesus himself said, this glory that we, find, that we seek, these lives that we have, as Jesus said, if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. If you try to hold on to your life, you will lose it. If you want to find Glory, if we want to actually see that, it doesn't come as we raise ourselves up. It arrives as we lay ourselves down. This is what God has done for you, though, church. This is what he has done for his bride. That though all of your sin be as scarlet, he has washed them white as snow. And in doing that, he has made you forgiven, free, washed, sanctified, justified, and glorified in Jesus Christ. And he has gathered his people together as the church so that we would live in a way that points to his glory so that the world around us would have a visible representation of the glory of God and how we live and how we love one another and how we serve one another and how we say, not my will, but yours be done. And how we say that we are not living for our ourselves anymore and how enemies are reconciled in Christ. We are doing all these things so that the glory of God would be displayed, so that people would come and know him. And as we do that, with all the threats that rage against the church, God gives you his promise in this passage that every enemy that could ever be counted could exalt themselves against God, but he has given his word that his church will not fail, his people will not fall, the mission will not um, fail to be accomplished. And instead, as those enemies raise up against God, they will be lowered and his people will be sustained and multiplied and increased, even as we read in this text. That's the promise of God for his people. That's the promise of God for you. That in Christ, you are forgiven, freed, and made into his workmanship. God, we are thankful to be called your people. We are thankful that you have set us free, Lord, from our own desires, the way that we have been enslaved to sin. You have made us your own. You've bought us with a price. We praise you for this mercy and grace. May we be a church, Lord, that never, no matter how much you may bless us, no matter what kind of platform or size or whatever programs or something we may ever see as a church, God, may we never point to ourselves as the source of glory. May we be about Christ, for he is the one deserving of our praise forever, and all things come from his hand. We pray all this in his name. Amen.